Welcome to the Cutting Edge Health Podcast with Jane Rogers, where we discuss science to help prevent cognitive decline. People seem to think that cognitive decline is a natural part of aging, and it is not. Doctors still tell patients with Alzheimer's that there's nothing they can do for them. My mother was told that as I sat beside her. Dr. Dale Bredesen changed all that. I already had subjective cognitive impairment, SCI as it's called, or memory loss, at 54 years old, the same age as my father's symptoms, and he later passed with Alzheimer's. I was scared, and Dr. Bredesen provided a lifeline. I did everything his New York Times bestselling book, The End of Alzheimer's, said to do, and it worked. In addition to this book, he's authored two more, The End of Alzheimer's Program and The Survivors of Alzheimer's. This is part two of a two-part interview with Dr. Bredesen, currently the chief science officer of Apollo Health and a professor at UCLA. So I'd like to throw a couple things out and get your idea on what's needed. So research funding, you're in the middle of research. Yeah. What's wrong with our research funding today for Alzheimer's? Yeah. So lots. <laughs> Do I have all night? Yeah. <laughs> Hours to talk about it. Probably. Well, unfortunately, the system is kind of broken in this area because what happens, we, everyone started out years ago with a very positive attitude. We're going to figure out this disease and we're going to develop something for it. But, but now what's happened is it's become political. It's become financial. People are basing their whole careers and all of their finances. You know, this, as you know, uh, this is a, if, if you get a drug that actually works for Alzheimer's, this is going to be a multiple hundred yeah. billion dollar drug. So for aducanumab, $28 billion was spent to develop this. And so no surprise, Doctors are being paid as consultants to say that it's a good drug when everybody knows it's not. And in fact, the panel, uh, the, the expert panel that wasn't being paid to say that it was a good drug, um, said that it was not a good drug. So this is the problem. And, and unfortunately, um, re, the, when you have peer review of research, you're being reviewed by your competitors. And the competitors who are interested in going the way that we're going, which hasn't resulted in anything positive, are going to continue to support going in the same direction. So for anyone to say, no, that's the wrong way to go, we're going to have to go in a new direction, and that's not going to get funding. Um, it, as you know, people tend to bet on the horses after they finish the, finish the across the finish line. Uh, so we do need to have some way to support novel research, different directions. And when you've got a, essentially what's been called the Alzheimer's mafia, when, when you've got a group of people that are basing their careers and their finances on one way of thinking, of course, they're not going to support a different way of thinking, especially when that way of thinking says, look, what you guys are doing is wrong. You, you've been going in the wrong direction. And actually, I wrote about this uh, in the, the the recent book, the first survivors of Alzheimer's, um, you know, you go there. There's an old, you know, there's an old African proverb that said, uh, "If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together." But what happens when you're going together and you are going far, but you're going in the wrong direction? That is a yeah. huge problem. And then you start to con try to convince each other that you're going in the right direction. So yes, you're right. And this is where 
private philanthropy is going to change the world. Unfortunately, the, the pharmaceutical approaches and the NIH-supported approaches have not yielded anything uh, of significance in terms of therapeutic benefit for Alzheimer's disease. And that's where you secured private funding for your first clinical trial? last year and now your new one with 100 people. Yes, it's exactly. private funding. And, and we're grateful to Diana Merriam uh, and to the Evanthea uh, Foundation and the Four Winds Foundation uh, for their tremendous um, and visionary support of doing something different. Now, for years and years and years, um, we did have NIH funding. We did do basic research with that. Uh, and I was on the uh, NIA council for years. So we're, we're grateful to the NIH for the, the basic research it funded. But what happened was, as we now said, okay, the research is actually pointing us in a new direction. Then you've got the group there that's sitting, the peers who are sitting there saying, well, we don't want that new direction. We want to stick with where we're going here. So it's unfortunate. And I think this is, this is the history of medicine. You know, you look at what happened with scurvy. Very interesting. 16th century, 17th century, 18th century, 19th century. Every century you would see someone would come up with, oh, wait a minute, we need to use, you know, we need to understand this, this disease, we can do better. That was the whole limeys, you know, citrus fruit, this can help. And then the doctors would say, no, no, that's not the way it works. And so it would be lost for a while again, and then it would be brought up again. So it took a long time for doctors to change their approach. Um, and you go back to Dr. Semmelweis, who was, who, who was the one who said, look, you know, when women are dying when they give childbirth, when they give birth to children, be to babies, because we're not keeping our hands clean. And, and, and people said, no, you're crazy. There's nothing. One expert at the time, this is the early 1800s, said, there's no way you can get enough stuff under your fingernails to kill a whole human being. That's silly, because they didn't understand what germs were there. So this guy was ultimately forced into an insane asylum where he died within a couple of weeks ironically, from an infection. Mm. And so, you know, this is the history of medicine. It's been about, it's been, it hasn't been about disruption the way Silicon Valley has been. It's been about tradition and permission. And of course, it's worse than ever now because people have to ask permission from their insurance agencies. Am I allowed to give this treatment? Am I allowed to give that treatment? It's hilarious. So yes, medicine is, you know, leading us back into the 19th century. It's really, really out of date. And 21st century medicine needs to change fundamentally the way we think about healthcare and the way we deliver healthcare. I bet sometimes you feel like one of those guys from the past. You've been up on the mountaintop kind of by yourself and, and received a lot of criticism because you were the first rabbit out of the hole with something that worked and it was different. And so I bet, I bet it's been hard sometimes. I have to say, yeah, the, the science part was the fun part, the interesting mm -hmm. part, the intriguing mm -hmm. part. Um, the activism, and I never signed up to be an activist, but to, to be able to, to get out there and say, look, this, this is what the data actually, look, these people are actually getting better and the people in these drug trials are not. Um, as you said, we've had a tremendous amount of criticism, marginalization, uh, you know, can't get, uh, we've had a, a, you know, getting invited to be uh, on various shows and then canceled. Uh, I had an invitation to be on the Today Show, which was then summarily canceled uh, when the Alzheimer's Association uh, went on before. Uh, and so we've had a lot of pushback. Um, and I think, you know, the, the only thing you can do, get the trials done, get the data, publish the data show that, in fact, the science works. One of the things that's been intriguing to me is 
we're simply doing what the test tube research that we did for 30 years showed is the right way to attack this. It shows that this is the nature of this illness. What's interesting to me is that other physicians coming from completely different angles, Dr. Jeffrey Bland, Dr. Mark Hyman, Dr. David Perlmutter, who are coming from different approaches, ended up at the same place. And that really shows me that we're all, we, we took different paths to get there, but we all ended up at very much the same place. So what would you like to say if you're at maybe the end of your research career, toward the end, what do you want to say to those young bucks coming up and the young women who are going to be carrying the torch? What do you want to tell them? Yeah. So I, the first thing to do is do not start your research where the where you think the current field is. Question what's already out there. In other words, people who start their research, young people, start with, okay, we're told that this is a disease of amyloid and tau. What's the next step? So there's a huge mountain of assumptions there which have turned out to be incorrect. So start with first principles, please. Look at does this really make sense? You know, you have to pass the straight face test. You have to be able to say, hmm, why is it if this is a disease of amyloid and we remove the amyloid and people get worse instead of better, maybe we should question this theory instead of let's just get a different, that people say, well, let's do it earlier. Let's do it with a different drug. Let's do a different antibody and so forth and so on. So please question the basics and look at what actually is going on here. And the second thing is, it has to be internally consistent. If you know that whatever answer you come up with, whatever model you come up with, must be compatible with the fact that type 2 diabetes increases your risk, various toxins increase your risk, various pathogens increase your risk, sleep apnea increases your risk, Again, there are over 150,000 papers published on Alzheimer's. Whatever you come up with, you can probably reject very quickly based on what's already been published. Mm -hmm. And so it's got to be compatible with that. And then once you get a model that is compatible with all those things, then use it. Try it in human beings. Ultimately, you have to, the, you know, the ultimate test is to make human beings better, not just a transgenic mouse, but to make human beings better. And, the, and I should say, the mice have been one of the big problems because they are a poor model for what happens in human beings. When you induce, in mice, you induce Alzheimer's, it's genetics, and only 5% of Alzheimer's hit those types of genetics. And in fact, the type that's typically used for the mice, even less than 5%. So you're really creating a poor model and then looking at things that help that disease, but not things that help the vast majority of people who have this problem. So we've talked about what your thoughts are on changes needed in funding, changes in the research community. What changes do you think we're facing this pandemic? 45 million Americans who are living today will die of Alzheimer's. What needs to change within our communities? Yeah. I know you talked about assisted living and how we need to embrace your research and findings in the assisted living environment instead of just feeding them jello and stuff that won't help them um, at all. Yeah. Uh, 
what needs to change in our communities other than assisted living? Yeah, and, and you know, public health is what has to change. And so 100 years ago, people realized, hmm, there are a lot of problems with infections. We need to have safer water, better public health. And between antibiotics and public health improvements, that was really what led to better health spans in the 20th century. That was the big medical success of the 20th century. The medical success of the 21st century, which hasn't happened yet, but we now need we now know what we need to do to make it happen is to address complex chronic illnesses and this is i'm talking about alzheimer's cardiovascular disease cancers lupus autoimmune diseases all of these sorts of things metabolic diseases and again dr robert lustig does a great job in his book going through all the things that are critical the, this is the problem the healthcare problem currently it is why we're spending close to 20% of our GDP on health, and yet we have horrible health. We're something like 41st in terms of uh, in terms of our health span in the world. It's just horrible, and even in terms of lifespan. So we live a lot of our lives in sick span and a relatively small amount of our lives with health span. So this is what's going to change, and and so the, to do that. We need to get people checked earlier. We need, as I said, to get people on prevention get, and be able to have simple ways to measure the things that are actually driving this. And there are some basic things you can do for everybody, but then don't stop there. For the ones that then fall through the cracks and that are continuing to develop problems, take that next step. We can have a tiered system that is highly efficient and that will literally make Alzheimer's a rare disease. During this century, the 21st century, we should see a virtual end, that is to make these rare diseases, Alzheimer's, schizophrenia, cancer, lupus, all of these things that are these complex chronic illnesses. They are the illnesses of the 21st century. Now, once we deal with these, the next thing is likely to be uh, it's likely to be aging itself. And then we'll start looking at, okay, what are the things that are still driving this? And of course, we may still have uh, pandemics to deal with because you know the people interact with each other. They get this as hard as we try to treat these and prevent these. There, there still may be other viruses coming. Now, there's some very exciting work from Dr. Vishu Lingappa from UC San Francisco and now uh, his company, Prozetta, that is developing antivirals that are resistant to all mutations. And I think that's one of the most exciting really? things on the horizon. So you can have Omicron, you can have Omega, you pick it, have whatever you want. Um, you'll still have an excellent and non-toxic antiviral. So I'm very excited as that sort of it begins to get out there. But to me, that's where things are going. And yes, this will include targeted drugs, but the, we're not, we won't be asking for the drugs to do too much. Right now, we're trying to take one little drug for this incredibly complex network dysfunction and say, okay, you should do 100 different things. It, it, frankly, it, it doesn't pass the straight face test. It's laughable. Okay. I'd like to geek out on some things kind of more down in the weeds and see, what do you think? Yeah. Hormetic stress. Yeah. Hormetic stress is good for you, Absolutely. except when it's pushed too far and then it becomes a bad thing. That is the trick. And again, epigenetics will help us to tell, okay, did you push too hard? Yes, you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, 
Uh, I like to laugh that, you know, we talk about the Wim Hof method of, you know, getting cold, getting your mitochondria charged. Um, and on the other hand, there's the Wim Hof method where you don't even want to get cold. You want to stay warm. You don't you don't want to do these things. So, yes, there's some there's some hormesis there. That's why, you know, get out there, get in the surf, get in the ocean, you know, get get cool. And, and you're right. Hormesis is good for you. But yes, to a point. And you've got to kind of learn where that point is. You don't want to push it. People who are doing, you know, who've tried to do many, many, uh, for example, many, many marathons, uh, you know, they're breaking down. It's hurting them. Don't push your heart too hard. Don't go too quickly. So, you know, biological systems were not made to function in square wave jerks. That is to say, we weren't meant to do no exercise and then to do a ton of exercise. You have to ramp up. And then you have to ramp down. If you're now going to stop a drug, for example, got to ramp. Don't cold turkey it. Ramp down. Biological systems were meant to go up slowly and down slowly. So yes, hormetic stress, great. Please be careful. Don't kill yourself. Same thing with things like it. Uh, you know, uh, in high intensity interval training. But people are starting to now realize what can be developed around these things. So you, I'm sure you've heard about uh, these uh, resistance bands. You can put on resistance bands so you basically get more bang for your buck when you're doing exercise. Mm-hmm. So there, again, there are tremendous numbers of things that are coming up around physiological optimization. Speaking of cold, first I start a hot shower and then I slowly go down to yeah. cold. You don't realize you're getting so cold, yeah. but I'm working on that. And that's helping your mitochondria. It is. Yeah. And you feel better after you've cold showered for like 30, 40 seconds. No question. Um, cerebral blood flow. Why is it important? How can you measure it? What do you think of the right. EWOT? Uh, I like EWOT, exercise with oxygen therapy. Absolutely helpful. And there's some nice work actually out of Israel recently showing HBOT, hyperbaric oxygen, um, helpful for cognition as well. So here's the thing. Out of the four, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the big four groups that are actually driving our cognitive decline, ending ultimately in what we call Alzheimer's disease, um, energetics, the number one of the four, it's the, it's the big one. Then there's, of course, inflammation, and there's trophic activity, and, the, and there's uh, toxicity. And so with energetics, there are mainly four big things. Blood flow, you've got you've to deliver the energy to your mitochondria, right? Mm-hmm. Oxygenation, mm-hmm. so people who have sleep apnea or people who are dropping their oxygen saturation at night. There's a beautiful paper showing if you simply look at the average oxygen saturation at night for each person, it correlates beautifully with the size of specific nuclei within their brain, including the hippocampus. So if you're dropping your oxygen at night, it's likely that your brain is a little bit smaller. Let's make sure that the oxygen is good. Mitochondrial function is the third piece of this. And then ketosis, getting the ketones. You need to burn either glucose or ketones. So when you're in good shape, you're metabolically Mm -hmm. flexible. You're able to burn glucose. You're able to burn ketones. You don't want to have so much glucose that you're now getting insulin resistance. What happens to us as we start to develop cognitive decline, we lose both of those. So what's happening is we're losing the ability to get the glucose, and that's what the PET scans show in Alzheimer's, a reduction in glucose utilization in the temporal and parietal regions. So we're not getting the glucose ability. We have insulin resistance, but we also are not able to develop and use ketones. We're not keto-adapted. One of the things that inhibits the production of ketones is, guess what? Insulin. 
So until you get your insulin sensitivity back, you won't have either of those things. And so that's a critical piece. And absolutely blood flow, people who have vascular disease are unquestionably at increased risk for Alzheimer's. In addition to that, of course, you have leaky vessels. So you have not only poor flow, but you also have leaky vessels and unfortunately blood-brain barrier breakdown as you're developing cognitive decline. You just helped me there because I've had some blood sugar issues and I always had trouble getting into ketosis. Flipping from burning sugar to burning fats has always been a struggle. So do it slowly. And that's why just use exogenous ketones at the beginning to get those ketones up. And then slowly you can get yourself into an endogenous ketosis. How can you tell if you are synaptoblastic or synaptoclastic? Great point. And the idea here is no different than with osteoporosis. You have osteoblasts that make the bone, you have osteoclasts that pick up the bone. And when you're getting osteoporosis, your osteoblastic activity is being exceeded by your osteoclastic activity. When you're developing cognitive decline, your synaptoblastic activity, the ability to make and store synapses, learn new things, is being exceeded by your synaptoclastic activity. And what happens is you have this molecule in the middle here, this amyloid precursor protein. This is the the parent of the amyloid that we study in Alzheimer's disease and so many people have studied. It's not just about the amyloid. This is a signaling molecule that interestingly is a switch. When things are good, it goes into the synaptoblastic mode. It makes two fragments that tell you, yes, make new synapses store, just like your country would do, say, okay, we're going to make new bridges, we're going to make new highways, these sorts of things. When you are insulted, you've got poor dentition, you've got poor oxygenation, all the things we talked about, this same molecule switches into a different mode saying we have to pull back and protect. By the way, the same thing that happened to our country uh, with COVID. There was an insult, in this case, SARS-CoV-2. Everyone was told, you know, socially distance, et cetera, shelter in place. And what happened? We went into a recession. Same thing happens in your brain. You are going into a protective mode. And that amyloid is actually a protective antimicrobial peptide. It's killing the things that are coming into your brain and attacking it. So what you need to be doing then is getting yourself back into a synaptoblastic mode. Now you mentioned, how do you know you're in a synaptoblastic mode now? And this is where the epigenetics will be really helpful. They can actually tell you what your rate of brain aging is. It's where the phosphotau in the bloodstream is helpful to tell you, are you damaging your neurons or not? But you can get a first order approximation by looking at your basics, at your HOMA IR, are you insulin sensitive, at your HSCRP. It's the very things that we put together in the protocol we developed, uh, which we call RECO. So the idea is we're looking at this whole set of biochemical parameters that tells you, are you doing the optimal things to get you to heal, to get you back into the synaptoblastic, into the building mode and out of this protective downsizing mode? One more geeky thing. And then I know you've given us so much of your time. Thank you. Thank you. Um, what do you think about katsu? K-A-A-T-S-U. What do you think? I think it's fantastic. And I try to say I was skeptical about this. Katsu are these resistance bands that I mentioned earlier. So you can put them around your arms and legs and things like that. And then you want to be careful. Don't make them too tight. 
Um, you don't want to stop the blood flow. But what they do is they basically restrict to the point that you're getting a little bit of additional lactic acid. There's a slightly uh, reduced flow. And so you're saying to your body, okay, we need to now support this. It is essentially a hormesis type of effect that allows you then to push back and allows people to build muscle better, to become more insulin sensitive. Having muscle is actually helpful for being insulin sensitive. So it's, it's supportive in that way. So I think it's great stuff. Where do people turn? Let's say I have a family member that, I'm, that has subjective cognitive impairment. Um, I'm feeling it myself, maybe, if I, I'm losing things, forgetting things. Where should they turn? Yeah, so there are a number of ways that you can look this up. There, there's some books that you mentioned. You can look at uh, The End of Alzheimer's, which goes into some basics here. You can also check um, the website. You can go to My Cognoscopy. Please, people, you know, get evaluated, get things checked out, and make sure that you don't. You know, we Nobody has to get this disease virtually. We can essentially make this. I know this sounds crazy. We can make this disease optional. We should be making it a rare disease. So let's not have cognitive decline. Let's try to keep people sharp. I love for people to get to their 90th birthday and be you know, sharp, not have to worry about this problem. Please get checked for your APOE status and for your basic biochemical status, as I said, that you'll get with cognoscopy. Um, you can also go to apollohealthco.com, working with a group of software engineers from Silicon Valley, a number of actually uh, who have come from Apple, uh, who are looking at how can we get larger data sets, better algorithms for better outcomes. And again, that's part of the future of healthcare. And then my final question, and I know you are a very humble, modest person, but you've done incredible work. Thanks. What are you most proud of in your life? Uh, as I said, the thing that gets me most excited is to hear from people who have gotten better, who, who went from hopeless to hopeful, and from Julie, who is in the book, and Sally, who is in the book, and Edward, who is in the book, and Frank, who is in the book, and all these people. And we'd like to see that. You know, we now have hundreds and thousands of people. We'd like to see that for millions of people. So we want to see a world in which cognitive decline is rare. We want to see a, a reduction of the global burden of dementia. And that's what translating our research into practical things, and I recognize it's not as practical as it should be yet. We're getting there. Uh, that's, that's what I'm most happy about. Thank you. Thank you so much for what you've yeah. done for our world. Thank you for what you've done for our family and your time. Thank you, Jane. I look forward to talking anytime and please keep optimizing and uh, keep me up to date. I will. All right. Thanks. Have a great day. All right, you too. Thanks, Jane. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Cutting Edge Health Podcast, created and hosted by Jane Rogers. The website is cuttingedgehealth.com. We hope you enjoyed the show and would very much appreciate your writing a review. They help a lot and we read each one. Any information shared on this podcast is for educational purposes only. Guest opinions are their own. This podcast is not responsible for the veracity of their statements. The comments expressed are not medical advice. Do not use any of this information without first talking to your doctor. This podcast and Jane Rogers disclaim responsibility for any adverse effects from the use of any information presented. Thank you for listening and have a beautiful day.